It's 7 o'clock Sunday evening here in New York, and in Europe in the Far East, Monday, the 544th day of war, has already begun. Each Sunday evening at this time, the National Broadcasting Company brings you on-the-spot reports from staff observers throughout the world. Tonight, Baukage is heard reporting from Washington, Edward Mackay from Shanghai, David Anderson from Rome, John McVeigh from London, Charles Lanius from Berlin, and Martin Negronsky from the Balkans. First, listen to Bockage reporting from our newsroom in Washington. Bockage talking from Washington. There was a Sunday calm along Pennsylvania Avenue today while the president took his weekend rest at Hyde Park. But I walked through the White House grounds a little while ago and I noticed the gates were closed. They seldom are. I found they weren't locked and I went in. And then I noticed a little band of middle-aged women walking by outside of the high iron fence. And they began to chant, Kill, Kill, Bill 1776. Some of them carried banners, and as I looked at one, the bearers stopped and read it out to me. It said, Dotty is Dotty over war. I didn't know what that meant, and the gray-haired woman with glasses on explained carefully that Dotty meant Dorothy Thompson, and they didn't like her. At the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue at the Capitol, the congressional opponents of H.R. 1776, the Lend-Lease Bill, are taking a more realistic attitude of things. They know they can't defeat the measure, and so they're trying to organize their shock troops to smash through with some amendments limiting the presidential powers. Their success depends on just one thing. What changes will the administration accept in the bill in order to hasten action on its speed? Well, we'll know the answer to that question before long, because the administration considers time to be the essence of this contract. This contract that Congress is about to sign in order to get aid to Britain before it's too late. This coming week, the opponents will base their attack on two issues. The possibility of further naval units being transferred to the British and the possibility of sending American troops, Army and Navy, abroad. Well, Senator Walsh, Democrat of Massachusetts and Chairman of the Naval Affairs Committee, will sponsor an amendment to bar transfer of any more warships, American warships, to England. And that, of course, would mean that the much-mooted suggestion of Wendell Wilkie to send from five to ten destroyers a month to England would be out. Senator Ellender, Democrat of Louisiana, will introduce another amendment, declaring that no provision of the Lend-Lease Bill should be so construed as to give the President any new powers to send American troops outside of the Western Hemisphere. Senator Ellender admits that the President now has power under the Constitution to send the Army and the Navy anywhere he believes they should go in the interest of national defense. But Ellender says that he doesn't think sending sailors or soldiers to England now would come under that provision in the Constitution, and he thinks it would strengthen the bill if there were a provision there at making it plain that this measure gives the president no more latitude than he already has. So far this evening, there has been no indication that the administration forces have been able to get any concessions from the opponents as to limiting the time of the debate, and probably the amendments will be voted on Thursday. However, the administration leaders insist that they have a safe margin of vote when the final roll is called. Meanwhile, every effort of the defense agencies is being made to aid, to begin aid to Britain in a concrete form the very moment the bill is passed. What aid that will be, of course, is difficult to say. But if the German drive, which is expected, will begin in March, appears to be successful as it progresses, a similar change in public opinion is expected here, such as took place when the Nazi war machine invaded the Low Countries. If there is such a change of heart, 
on the part of the people, the question of convoying supplies will undoubtedly be raised, for the Germans will undoubtedly turn all the fury of their U-boats and their bombers on the supply ships carrying those supplies which England would get under the Leasland Bill. The Germans, as you know, have already announced that. That's all, and thanks very much. And now to China for news from the Far East. Go ahead, Shanghai. Come in, Shanghai. <laughs> Please come in, Shanghai. Hello, America. This is your Shanghai reporter, coming to you from station XMHA in Shanghai, China. Today, it seems that the position of the Far East in this war is more important than we ever imagined. Events in other parts of the world and the crises of the last few months out here beyond the Pacific have left us with no thought but that this is an ominous law before more and more grave trouble. It is interesting to note that since the departure of Ambassador Nomura from Japan for America, there have been no strong statements from Tokyo, with the exception of one comment which could be construed as double talk, a statement to the effect that Japan would not risk the international suicide of a war with America. This statement, as made by a Japanese spokesman, is supposed to have escaped censorship, but one school of thought believes it was intentional and meant to give false assurance. This formula is well known to all of us as standard equipment for aggressive nations. Also, authorities here note with extreme interest the current conversations between Tokyo and Moscow regarding economic agreement. Because Japan's eyes are turned southward, and she must leave comparative safety behind her. We are wondering at present whether Nazi pressure in Moscow is sufficient to force Soviet acceptance of Japanese demands for an agreement concerning economics and the northern Chinese frontier. Japan cares little for fighting on more than one frontier, and her newly appointed role of mediator in the Siamese and French Indochina incident is for no small purpose. Should she succeed in exacting a heavy fee in the form of strategic bases, she will need many of her northern forces to consolidate what she gains. But a surprise has come in the form of a counter move, the sudden and unheralded arrival of Australian troops at Singapore, and again firing subsequent assurance to the world in general that the most friendly terms exist between herself and Singapore. And now Malaya informs the world that she is fully prepared and will resist violence with violence should her borders be encroached upon. To which the Shanghai Morning News has something to offer, since Indochina is now charged by Tokyo with making warlike preparations, and quiet and unexpected movements of warships in the southern Pacific where an uneasy Japanese fleet is cruising, lead us to believe that the stage is being set for more trouble. Shanghai continues to maintain its reputation as a city of violence and bloodshed. Hardly they go by, but what some store or bank is borrowed, some who went through a nightclub, or some financially important man is kidnapped. Incidentally, Great Britain's concern over the situation in the Far East is so great that its authorities have unofficially warned their nationals to leave Shanghai. A short while ago, 
Employees of one of the largest British firms here were not only advised but ordered to make immediate arrangements for the evacuation of their dependents. It is important to note that this order for evacuation has come concurrently with the third warning from the American consulate in Shanghai to remaining nationals. Although this warning was no stronger than the other two and mentioned that no more evacuated ships would be sent to the Far East, the remaining American residents of this city are fully aware that now a word to the wise is a great deal more than sufficient. There is a waiting list for accommodations on all American ships leaving this port from now until June. More space has been made over on the Coolidge so that, so that she will sail from Shanghai with practically a thousand persons on the 23rd. Considering Shanghai's geographical position, Baroness here would be well to heed any such advice. Or should an embargo become an actuality, or should naval hostilities break out between Japan and any other power, short work could be made of battling up this entire city. Already, commodity prices are soaring to a level that prohibits the good old days of price delivery in the East. In fact, Shanghai and the Orange in general have come to a very clearly defined crossroad. For until comparatively recently in history, this part of the world has cherished and retained a culture of its own completely removed from that of the Western world. Now, the expanding trade of the Western Hemisphere has brought with it a choice of democracy or proletarian government. The Occidental civilization now offers the Orient a choice between these two powers, further complicated by the tragedies that they are at present locked in deadly combat. The East can condone or take in her stride or absorb either of these beliefs, but she can ignore neither of them. What will happen? And now this is Edward Mackay in Shanghai, returning you to the ABC Newsroom in New York. Next, Mediterranean news from our reporter in the Italian capital. Go ahead, Rome. Hello, NBC. For the first time since the middle of November, Benito Mussolini made a public speech today. Black shirt crowd filled the Adriana Theater to see and hear him, and thousands gathered in public squares to hear his speech on the radio. He reviewed the history of the war to date and assured his audience of an Axis victory. The isolation of Great Britain from the continent, he said, has forced her to call for American aid. But even this, he claimed, will not suffice to equal or surpass the combined Axis forces who are now in control of the whole of Europe. The situation in the Mediterranean and uncertain conditions in the Far East have been very much in the news lately, and not least of all here in Rome. There has been no official announcement made as yet on the reported British mining of the waters in the central Mediterranean. This is perhaps the reason why the subject is conspicuous by its absence from Italian newspapers today. The significance of such a move on the part of the British would seem to be overruled by the note of confidence started in editorials today dealing with the Mediterranean in particular and naval warfare in general. Signor Gaida, the editor of Il Giornale d'Italia, writes today that a new phase of the war is being prepared in the Mediterranean. He asserts that Italy has been keeping the major portion of Great Britain's land and sea forces concentrated in this region. This, he claims, has seriously handicapped the protection of the British Isles proper and has meant insufficient protection for British convoys. Now, says Mr. Guider, the Mediterranean Sea 
and land forces are caught in the Axis trap, and the Axis is ready for action. What shape or form the action will take is not intimated. At least the first move seems to have been taken by the British. <clears throat> and now all that remains are any counter moves which the Axis forces may deem essential. The Italian viewpoint on the Far Eastern situation is very clear. The landing of Australian troops in Singapore and the American measures to strengthen the Pacific Islands of Guam and Samoa are called attempts at intimidation. Common people rarely if ever hit the headlines, and this is particularly true during a war. While watching the progress or regress of one side or the other, the backbone of the nation, the man on the street, is often forgotten. It takes more stringent ration laws or prohibitions to listen to foreign broadcasts to bring our attention around to Mr. and Mrs. Average Italian. I've been in Rome for two months now, and I found the Italian people to be quite different from any preconceived notion I may have had of them. The stories of riots and unrest among the people and wild rumors of revolution had given me a conception of them which was misleading. As far as I've been able to judge the Italian people, I would say that they are more or less fatalists, not defeatists. Whether they wanted this war or not, the fact that they are in the war is enough for them. It must be remembered that war to the Italian, who has not yet been called to the colors, is much different from the war which is known to the Londoner, or perhaps even one living in Berlin. There is not much fear of bomb raids here. When an Italian goes to sleep at night, he does so with a certain feeling of security. Then, too, the demands of the average Italian are fairly simple. It has often been said, give an Italian a plate of spaghetti and a bottle of candy, and he's satisfied. Well, with the recent ration laws, his supply of this commodity has been greatly reduced, and substitutes have had to be found. But as far as I've been able to observe, the Italians are taking the new restrictions on food pretty much in stride. Complaining? Yes. The Italians always complain. But there is very little fire behind an Italian complaint. As to the war, every Italian is conscious of the setbacks suffered or victories gained. These people are not stupid, and no propaganda, foreign or local, can paint an unreal picture to them and expect it to be believed. The fatalistic attitude of the Italian people may be the reason why there is still every evidence of normalcy in the country. One can go through any street here in Rome, and except for an occasional brass band parade, little would lead him to believe that this country is at war. This is David Anderson returning you now to NBC in New York. Overseas again, this time for a report from our staff in England. Go ahead, London. The raiders seem to be widely scattered over various parts of the country, especially the east coast. But that's the only real report of bombing that we've received. Observers on the English Channel coast saw flashes on the French coast tonight that seemed to indicate the British are bombing the Calais and Boulogne areas. British official circles aren't bothering to comment on Mussolini's speech today. They think he said nothing that in any way affects the diplomatic situation. But London observers note that Duce no longer made any suggestion 
that Italy is going to do anything for herself. And his speech kept hopping on the theme that Germany would do something to get the Italians out of the mess they're in. These observers think Mussolini's attempts to justify the Italian attacks on Greece show that there has been criticism of the move in Italy. The British say that Mussolini's admission that no reinforcements can be sent to East Africa must be disheartening for the Italian troops in the area. As for the argument that it was the native Libyan troops who used the British attacks in North Africa, the British point out that nearly two-thirds of their thousands of prisoners are white Italian troops. Reports reaching Britain of increased agitation by Mr. Hoover and his committee for the idea of sending food shipments to Belgium and the other German-occupied countries seem to make it worthwhile to re-examine the British attitude toward the question. That attitude is very plain. Britain is at war, fighting for her existence. Forty miles away from the British coast is a German arms camp called Belgium. Belgian industries are being worked by Belgium for the German war machine, according to British information. And Belgian food has been requisitioned by Germans. Mr. Hoover's committee is asking the British to lay aside their chief weapon against Germany, the blockade, to permit food shipments to go to that German camp. This committee has talked about starvation on the continent, and has concluded that the British will suffer no military disadvantage from allowing food to enter Belgium. There has been some talk of pleas made by the Belgian people for food. The British admit that food conditions inside Belgium and occupied France are not so good, but then they're not perfect inside Britain. The rationally here now will buy two lamb chops or a pound of hamburger per person a week. And the British look forward to eating only one chop or a half pound of hamburger a week if that will help them do a victory over Germany. When the average Britisher is tightening his own belt to import the munitions his country needs, he can't worry too much about the fact that the Belgians or the French are tightening their belts too. As for military disadvantage to Britain, the British say they need every available ship they can lay their hands on to bring munitions and food to Britain. If any other ships are going to be made available for shipping food to Europe, the British, with their huge weekly shipping losses, could use every single one to help feed their own people and to bring over the munitions that they need to defend themselves and attack their enemies. Incidentally, official circles here say they haven't had any pleas for food from the occupied countries. Say the Germans have caused any food stores in the continent by their requisition. And the information smuggled over here from the people in the occupied countries has had one thing. The people living under Nazi control are saying, keep up the blockade, helping beat the Germans. I was talking to the British food expert today, and I asked him about the argument that unless food is sent them, the freedom-loving small nations will be only empty husks when Britain wins. He said, what will they be if Britain doesn't win? That's the main point. We've got to win. The British are sure the Germans will feed the people of Belgium and France. It's to the German interest to do so. Those countries form the chief basis for a huge German army that is preparing to attack Britain. If the Germans would allow the populations to starve, that fact would increase their difficulties. It would cut down production of factories now working for Germany, and it would decrease the value of those countries as military bases. The British think the Germans will make sure that all food stocks are exhausted, and then they will be forced to feed the subject's populations. The British use figures put out by the Germans themselves to support the belief that the famine menace in the German-occupied countries has been greatly exaggerated. Finally, the British say that it would take an administrative body of many thousands to keep check on the food going to the Belgians and to see the Germans didn't take it over. One British official summing up the whole discussion today said, We sympathize with humanitarian motives. There are things a lot more inhumane than keeping food shipments from the continent. If Mr. Hoover spent a night in a London subway shelter during a bad bombardment, he'd see what we mean.
This is John McVeigh in London, returning you to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. We've heard from our reporters in Washington, Shanghai, Rome, and London. And now a report from our staff covering events in Germany. Go ahead, Berlin. Gentlemen, DC. This is Charles Monnies in Berlin. German reaction to Senior Mussolini's speech in Rome this afternoon began to creep into the news tonight. Vice Marshal in Hermann Gary's newspaper, the Essener National Zeitung, says the speech will later be recognized as a turning point, which preceded the catastrophe of a British defeat. Gary's newspaper described what it terms the cheerful calm with which the Duce told the Italian people about fascist military reverses, and says that in spite of these reverses, the moral strength of the Italians has been steadily growing in recent months. According to the newspaper, the Duce showed an unshakable certainty to the victory of the Axis. Official circles in Berlin tonight have so far reserved comment. In other quarters, it's believed that when it comes, it will follow closely the line taken by the Essener National Zeitung. The Frankfurter Zeitung gives ahead of what may be behind the cheerful calm of Mussolini. In an editorial which leads one to believe that the Axis plans to liquidate the Greek war in the near future. According to the Frankfurt paper, the Italian Greek war is the result of the Greeks adhering to a policy framed by the British. Greek Albanian front is only being held up by British material and help, and if the Frankfurter Zeitung is accurate in its forecast, that front will be gone with the wind of the spring. This may mean any of a great number of things, but looking at the Italo Greek war picture from here, it seems highly probable that the senior partner of the Rome Berlin axis will have a finger in the pie when the liquidation comes off. Well, spring isn't far off, so the chances are we won't have a long time to wait before we see what actually does happen. The Germans I've seen tonight are much amused at a story concerning ex-Governor Earl of Pennsylvania. The tale I get from Berlin comics is that our new Bulgarian minister is suffering from a slightly injured arm in Sofia tonight. If the yarn is true, Minister Earl was having dinner in his favorite cafe and asked the orchestra to play his favorite tune, which happened to be an English song. Someone... A German, according to the Berlin I get here, objected. Now, one man blitzkrieg was the result. I'm told the other fellow went to the hospital. I can't vouch for any of this, but in any case, that's the story that's going around in Berlin tonight. Heinrich Himmler, chief of the German police, is advocating that every German family should have between four and six children. This suggestion is the main point of a new book Himmler has just published, especially for a stormtrooper man. The announced purpose of the publication is to further the natural fertility of the German people. The book claims that early marriage and many children are vital as a principle in national socialism. Himmler asks his men to remember that invisible arms alone can't ensure the existence of a people for all time. On the contrary, Germans must understand that fertility is necessary to guarantee Germany's future existence. The police chief's book is illustrated with pictures showing the high values of German Nordic mothers. These photographs, as claimed, are enough to convince the German people, that the German man, that he must look for a wife among his own people, and shows him the kind of woman to avoid if he wants to build up a good German family. Military action, particularly in the air, seems to have slackened off today. The Germans report only one air fight for the day. That apparently took place somewhere over England. 
German fighters flew over England and encountered only one British Spitfire. The pilots claimed they shot it down and returned to their home base without loss to themselves. Today's high command bulletin is amplified by the German radio tonight. It said that during reconnaissance flights yesterday, German airmen machine gunned the lighthouse of Fetland Firth. Before they returned home, they made two direct hits on an industrial plant near the coast. Last night, the hybrid hole came in for an aerial bombardment. The Germans say they dropped their heaviest bombs on military objectives in the vicinity of the harbor. And that the area was in flames when they turned for home. In a daylight raid on the airfield at Manston, the Germans claim they destroyed four British machines on the ground. In addition, hangars were hit and set on fire. A fifth French plane is said to have been shot down in a dogfight over the North Sea. Further details on the bombardment of Benghazi in Libya were released tonight. The warship referred to by the high command today appears to be a British monitor, which was an anchor in the port. The Stukers are said to have made a direct hit amidships. This is Charles Lanius in Berlin. I now return you to NBC in New York. The news in the Balkans is reported tonight by our staff observer in Turkey. Go ahead, Ankara. Hello, NBC. This is Martin Negronsky calling from Ankara, Turkey. At 8 o'clock tonight in Ankara, six days after the signature of the Turkish-Bulgarian Declaration of Friendship and Non-Aggression, and on the eve, as many believe, of a German march into Bulgaria and against Greece, the Turkish Foreign Minister, Mr. Sarajiglu, has issued one of the most interesting statements that has come out of this capital since the beginning of this war. The statement is officially explained as having been made to clarify Turkey's foreign policy. Actually, it comes as direct result of the conflicting interpretations to which the Turkish-Bulgarian Declaration has been received in the foreign press, and is especially designed to combat the Nazi propaganda line which interprets the much misunderstood declaration of last Monday, as meaning that Turkey would remain indifferent to a German occupation of Bulgaria and attack on Greece. But before I interpret it further, here is Mr. Sirajiglu's statement. I quote, Nothing has changed in Turkish policy. Turkey remains faithful to its alliances. She is determined to live on good terms with all powers, especially her neighbors. And now these are the important words, and I quote again, Turkey cannot in any way remain indifferent to the activities of foreign powers which may take place within her zone of security. Turkey will oppose with arms any aggression which may be directed against her territorial integrity and independence. Mr. Sirajio concludes his statement by reaffirming the friendship and desire for peace shared by the governments of Turkey and Bulgaria. Now, coming as it does at this time, when it is seriously believed here in the Turkish capital that Hitler may at any moment push the button to start the Nazi armies across Bulgaria, on route to Salonika, the Turkish statement may again be given an exaggerated importance abroad, which it deserves no more than did its predecessor of last Monday. You might remember that I have qualified tonight's statement as most interesting, not as most important. I make this qualification because a careful study of tonight's text leads inevitably to the same interpretation which I gave you of the original Turkish-Bulgarian declaration of last Monday. That is, it adds nothing, it subtracts nothing, it changes nothing in the Turkish position, and what is more important, it still leaves undefined what the Turkish reaction will be if the Germans occupy Bulgaria and attack the Greeks, where it states first that Turkey will not remain indifferent to the activities of foreign powers in her zone of security. It still does not define what Turkey considers as her zone of security. For instance, is Bulgaria in that zone? 
And then in the very next sentence, it makes a flat statement that Turkey will fight any aggression directed at her own territory. Now, there has never been any doubt that Turkey would defend her own territory at the drop of a hat. But the question at issue today is whether Turkey would fight if Germany entered Bulgaria and attacked the Greeks. That question isn't answered tonight any more than it was last Monday. And again, I must predict that tonight's statement will be interpreted by the Germans as giving them a free hand in Bulgaria and against the Greeks. It begins to look more and more as if Turkey's role in the Balkans will be a defensive rather than an offensive one. Of course, it should not be excluded that should the British be able to back up the Greeks with a really sizable expeditionary force based on Salonika, the Turkish position might change overnight. And perhaps, considering that possibility, the most important news I can give you tonight is not the new Turkish statement, but the fact that Mr. Anthony Eden, the British foreign minister, is expected to arrive here soon after he has concluded his visit to Cairo. It is impossible to attach too much importance to this news. Mr. Eden will be accompanied by General Dill, Chief of the British Imperial General Staff, and by General Marshal Cornwall, Chief of the British Military Mission to Turkey, which concluded its conversations with the Turkish General Staff little more than a week ago. In consideration of their personal safety, I can't tell you when Mr. Eden and the British generals will arrive. But as Greece provides Britain's first chance since this war began to come to grips with the German army, the result of the coming Anglo-Turkish conversations may prove a turning point of the whole war. We have just concluded our regular Sunday evening roundup of news from our reporters throughout the world. Tonight, NBC reported from Washington, Shanghai, Rome, London, Berlin, and Ankara, Turkey. This is the National Broadcasting Company. <laughs>